Welcome back to the Veries and Numerous podcast of Briar.io production. That's B-R-Y-E-R.io. This is a special thank you to our sponsors. We start every show off with a thank you to them. Without them, this podcast is not possible. Introducing Zen Sports this week, a new sponsor of the Veries and Numerous podcast. Zen Sports is a peer-to-peer sports betting marketplace where anyone can create and accept sports bets with anyone else in the world without the need for a centralized bookmaker. Deposit funds instantly using cryptocurrencies or fiat. No long wait times or deposit fees. Reduce betting fees compared to traditional bookmakers. The sports utility token is used for placing bets, getting awesome discounts, cashback rewards, bonuses, and other perks. Betting is also available in Bitcoin or USD. This is a decentralized peer-to-peer platform where anyone can create and accept bets with anyone else in the world without the need of a central intermediary or a bookmaker. This is a trustless system that lets the marketplace settle bet results and disputes. Check them out at zensports.com. VinxCoin is the world's first decentralized fine French wine and vineyard-backed security token where anyone can be a fine French wine and vineyard owner from the comfort of their home. VinxCoin is currently conducting uh, the beginnings of their project over at VinxCoin.com. Check them out uh, and all of the interesting things they're doing uh, over there. Trios. Trios. What is Trios? Trios is an economy and a system, an ecosystem, a new, uh, a new economy, a fair economy. Trios is the direct reference to the decentralized money that will power a new economy. In the future, the term Trios will become synonymous with cryptocurrency, and virtual financial assets, VFAs. Their payment methods, their ecosystem, their general use as a both a utility and a store of value. Check them out over at trios.io. Sharing Coins, you found the brick-and-mortar financial institution where you can safely trade dollars for Bitcoin, USD to BTC, over-the-counter OTC, and person-to-person. They facilitate transactions of all sizes, including high-volume transactions. Their headquarters is located in Wakizi, Wakiza County, more than being just an OTC location where hot, we're, we are, they are here to educate you about Bitcoin wallets, blockchain, cryptocurrency, security, and platforms. If you're in the Milwaukee area, you can also uh, visit their ATM, their Bitcoin ATM, and more locations are coming soon. Visit SharonCoins.com. Bitcoin SOV, Bitcoin Store of Values, an emerging community-driven product. That has a decentralized team the world over. It is a proof-of-work mineable ERC-20 and has a deflationary design with token burns to ensure your value is stored over time. Check out their site at bsov.io. Lucho Paletti is a talented artist who created that masterpiece hanging up on my wall there, the Andy Warhol Buy Bitcoin uh, uh, piece of art there, which I love a lot. Check him out. He has pages of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin art over there. Keychains he's working on right now. Check him out over at luchopoletti.com. That's L-U-C-H-O-P-O-L-E-T-T-I.com. Flashcoin is a reinvention of Litecoin built to scale for, the worldwide, for worldwide commerce and fast enough to handle everyday transactions. The flexible and easy to integrate core code allows exchanges and wallets to add Flash to their platform within hours. With a settlement time of around five seconds and consensus, within two minutes, anyone, anywhere can use Flash Mobile Wallet as, as easily as cash or a credit card. Uh, 
I've talked about this before on the podcast. They're a new sponsor, but I've been using Flashcoin for a few years myself. They have a really cool um, uh, integrated marketplace within their app where you can uh, visit uh, vendors, merchants around the world, and you can see their products and, uh, um, you know, do commerce right over the app. So it's really cool. And um, uh, the future of uh, decentralized commerce. So check them out over at flashcoin.io. And as always, before we get into the episode today, remember nothing on briar.io written or spoken should be interpreted as financial advice. Always do your own research. You are the captain of your own financial ship. You control your own sovereignty and uh, uh, just make sure that you always do your own research and uh, educate yourself, self-invest in education and knowledge. Thank you everyone for listening to the show. Let's get into today's episode and uh, always, always appreciate you guys listening. Today's guest for the, thank you everyone for tuning in. Today's guest for uh, episode nine of the Varies and Numerous podcast is Vlad Costilla. He's the creator and host of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, which is now in season four. It's actually my favorite podcast. I was lucky enough to go on there. I think it was season two. He's a journalist and has worked for the Crypto Insider, Bitcoin Magazine. I believe he's also writing a book, which we can get some details about here as we go along. And, um, get the rundown on that. And he's a PhD student in political philosophy. Thank you for coming on the show today, sir. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like you made a list of all of my previous accomplishments, but I don't know. I wouldn't introduce myself as that. Yeah, I think uh, you have a you have a pretty detailed background in the space that, you know, people want to hear from people that have uh, been, in, you know, in crypto and Bitcoin for a while. So it's good to have uh, knowledgeable people on the show. So yeah, I guess. Yeah. So today is uh, March 11th, uh, 2020. The world is like in turmoil right now. The coronavirus is going, COVID-19 um, going down. The stock market is like down, you know, five, six, seven percent again today. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, the Bitcoin, this is for posterity. The Bitcoin price is 7,777. I think it actually just dropped below 7,700 a second ago. So uh, a lot going on in the world, but first I wanted to lead off the show with um, how are you doing over there in Romania? I saw some of your tweets you're preparing for the uh, virus. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what that's, what's going on in Europe and specific to your region. All right. So I am in Eastern Europe in Romania, and we thought we were kind of immune to the pandemic because we're not that touristic like Italy, like France, like Germany, like United Kingdom, you don't really have a reason to come here for touristic reasons. And that's why we thought we were safer. But at the same time, lots of Romanians, and by lots, I mean a couple million Romanians are working in Italy and in Spain. Mm -hmm. And I guess we are like the Mexicans of Europe, of Western Europe, just like your North Americans have Mexicans doing all these low-class jobs. Okay. Romanians come to Western or go to Western Europe and do these jobs that Western Europeans don't want to do. So right now we have lots of nationals coming back because they're scared of the pandemic and all of that quarantine situation there in Northern Italy. And it's also going to France and to Germany right now. And 
the fact that we have open borders. So there is the Schengen area in Europe, which contains about 20 something nation states from Europe. And Romania is not part of that. But basically, it means that you can travel from one, one country to the other without having any kind of border control. And that has been around for a few decades among countries like France and Germany and Austria and all of Central and Western Europe. Right. I know that you, so, you, you studied in Italy or you traveled there quite a bit. I know you speak in 2017. Yeah, actually, during that phenomenal bull market of Bitcoin, I was in Italy in Bologna, which is actually very close, like one and a half hours close to Milan, which is the epicenter of this huge epidemic in Italy. So do you happen to know anybody personally that's been affected yet? Like anybody that was over there uh, in Italy or Spain that got stuck or if, if they actually are letting people, like you said, kind of travel back. It has, do you know of anybody personally that's uh, like had any, you know, complications with the deal with the, uh, you know, travel or anything, or they're letting everyone just come back basically. Uh, theoretically, everyone should be blocked from coming back at this okay. point. Okay. But in practice, there have been thousands of people who got into our country in the last week in Romania, they returned from Italy and from Spain, mm -hmm. and they were able to bypass the border control. And it was very reckless on their behalf because a lot of people are getting ill. Right. And yesterday, the official reports here said that we had under 100 people under quarantine. Mm -hmm. And today, it's almost today at 10 a.m. in the morning. It was around 500. And I'm sure it got worse and universities are getting shut down and you have people freaking out in the private sector and then the public sector. I think only today they decided to put some kind of disinfectant substance uh, mm -hmm. at the entrance so that you get to clean your hands. And that's crazy. Right now, I, I tried to do some shopping today and we cannot find any vitamin C. It's all sold out in pharmacies because for vitamin C boosts your immune system. And I know that it was also used by medics in Wuhan in China mm -hmm. to treat those who were infected with coronavirus. So it's insane, really. I could not find it. I went online to some kind of online pharmacy of which I have never heard. And I tried to add products to the basket. And by the time I could complete the order, it was already sold out. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Everyone sort of, you know, there's like memes and stuff about preppers, but, um, you know, every, nobody wants to be a prepper until it's too late, I guess. It's kind of like the same here, you know, in the, in the U.S. It's schools are starting to close and, um, you know, the I, one, one, uh, I think New York state or New York city is using prison labor to make hand sanitizer now. So it's just like, there's all these sort of measures being taken. I actually, I don't know how serious of, uh, you know, risk we run since we're still pretty young, but, um, it is a little bit scary, but let's get into the fun stuff here. Uh, you know, you're the bit, you're the, one of the Bitcoin, uh, leading experts on my Twitter feed. So, I got to bring you on here and talk about the fun stuff. Not the virus just is something that, you know, I had to ask you about since it's been 
impacting everybody in the whole world now. So did you grow up in Romania? Oh, yeah. What, Close right. to the Buc- Bucharest area. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd like to definitely check out that part of Europe sometime um, here. Oh, not that. this time of the year. Definitely don't. What's the best time of year to go to Romania? Not right now, because <laughs> there are rumors that they will shut down the city and not allow anyone to get out or get in by the end of the week. Okay. Due to the coronavirus. Right, right. And did you did did you study at a uh, university in Romania or where did you? I know I know you. Uh, what was your undergrad experience like? Like where did you go to school and what did you study? I went to the University of Bucharest in Romania, and I did political science. And during my bachelor, I got a scholarship in Sweden in Gothenburg, and I went there for six months. And after that, I signed up for a master degree. You don't sign up for the degree, for a program, for a master Mm -hmm. program, also in Bucharest at the same university. And I got a scholarship in Paris at Sciences Po, which is kind of huge. It's kind of a big deal because all of the French presidents and diplomats and all of the leading people in politics and administration from France go to that institution. It's like a mandatory step to getting public office afterwards. So I got a scholarship there for another six months and it was a life-changing experience to be among snobs. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was very educational, and I felt like I was at a level where I was no longer the smartest guy in the room, and I had a lot to learn and adapt to get to other people's level. But part of me wishes I could always get that kind of education, you know, so that I would always get challenged. And that's why I got into Bitcoin. A few years later, actually, it wasn't too much later, but you find all of these people from all sorts of fields who have expertise and try to bring the knowledge of their previous lives and previous careers into Bitcoin. And then you end up with your mind blown. Right. So that's actually, um, that's, that's interesting the way you put that, that, you know, you, you were the smartest guy in the room until you, you know, you went there, uh, where you didn't, not your exact words, but you know, uh, it's always good to be around people that are really intelligent, you know, so you can, like you said, gain from their experience and, um, you know, make it some of those experiences, uh, shape you from, you know, just being around them. But what was it, was it around that time that you started reading more economic? I know you read, uh, you've read the Austrian school of economics and stuff. So did you, uh, start reading any of that during that time frame, or what's your experience with uh, reading the Austrian school? Actually, it's funny because in my third year of bachelor, I was able to pick my classes and I took everything that was related to law because everyone told me I would have been better off if I went to law school. And I took everything related to law and economics. And during the two classes that I had in economics, one was called international political economy. And it was basically studying, it was about Adam Smith and David Ricardo and all of these classics. And the other economics course that I took, it was more like microeconomics. And I think it was much more Keynesian and left-wing. And I was 20, I think, at the time. And it was kind of confusing to my brain to get to different types of information from two professors. 
And I couldn't really handle this conflicting situation between Keynesians and Austrians. And I think that was kind of educational, but I was still stuck in the mindset of what is right, you know, as if only one can be right at a time. And I think when I went to Paris, I only stumbled upon left-wingers because usually if you go to higher education institutions in France, and I, I think it's kind of the same all over the West, right. it's more likely to find people who lean towards the left. And yeah, I, I used to have an economics and sociology professor in Paris who was trying to explain to us why social democracies are actually much more efficient at economic growth as opposed to right-wing free market systems. And I remember he showed us some statistics that he brought from some sort of research that was done by somebody else. And someone in my class just stood up and was like, are you kidding me? Why? How, how does that even make sense when you have a, an open, a free market and you still have inferior performance as opposed to something that's state controlled and, you know, what governments do to the economy? Right. It's it's pretty insane today that with all of the information that we have, uh, that people can still think that the left wing or the Keynesian uh, idea of economics isn't even, you know, has any sort of uh, validity, in my opinion. Um, but like you said, that's around the world. We're so indoctrinated with these people that, you know, these professors really uh, have to cozy up to the state because that's how they earn their living. And they end up writing books that, you know, uh, you know, just valid, they try to validate or try to, um, you know, create these theories around why they're right, just, you know, to keep the, uh, the, you know, the funding coming from the public, you know, it's, it's, they, the two work very hand in hand, in my opinion. I've come to the conclusion that science as such should be separated from ideology. I mean, it's fine to have beliefs of your own. But when you're trying to do something empirical that is based on evidence and on facts, you should try to take away your prejudice in regards to what you think that the data may mean. But then again, the data itself is only as valuable as the stories that we build around them. And it's just like looking at the Bitcoin price and seeing that it goes up or down. And then you look at the news and you say, oh, it's because this has happened. Mm -hmm. And you're going to make up a story about that and some people will buy it and believe it. Others will just say it's just part of a very crazy market that you're experiencing. So would you, I, I never thought about it like this, but I'm an anarcho-capitalist. At least that's like, if I had to give myself a title, uh, I don't, I don't believe in politics at all. You think that we are, or at least myself, I, are you an anarcho-capitalist? Would you think that people need to be completely removed from politics to actually be an, a, a sound economist? Well, that's a complicated question because nobody can really get removed from politics and you always end up having some sort of leadership and people being in charge of greater tasks as opposed to the lesser ones. So you always have some sort of system of classification and classes and you can call them whatever you want to. And you'll have professions that are more important than the other. 
And mm-hmm. in order for one profession to be more important than the other one, you need some sort of political system to legitimize this hierarchy. So I, I think I am what you call a minarchist. So I like limited government. I can understand the purpose of having borders, especially mm-hmm. now during a pandemic, because it's easier for social scalability to have smaller territories that have their own governance and are able to just take care of the resources themselves. And I also believe that you shouldn't really have private armies. I know I'm I'm a big fan of James Madison. I've read the, what do you call them? The Federal Papers. Yeah, Federalist Number 10 is one of the greatest political writings ever. And it's brilliant and it explains how factions work and why it's a good idea as opposed to restrict some and allow some to just allow all of them to exist, hoping that they will just clash and never establish cartels. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's brilliant. And for a large territory like the United States of America, it has worked for such a long time. But... At the same time, I don't think in smaller nations it's a good idea to allow private armies to exist. And for example, you think of Italy and their mafia, it still functions to some extent. So in some regions in the South, I think the mafia functions like a bona fide government mm-hmm. and they replace all of the functions and they are able to just override any decision by the government in that region. Just by brute force or whatever they use. So, yeah, but I I don't think private armies should exist in governments. And I'm okay with universal education because I I don't think we as a civilization can actually grow and develop if we have this disparity between those who are very smart and capable of obtaining intellectual resources And you might also have very brilliant kids who are born into poor families and they never get the chance to get an education to develop their talents. So from this point of view, I think I agree with a government for education, for security. And by security, I mean borders and some sort of police that's local. And possibly, I, I, I agree to some extent with healthcare, but I think healthcare is a field that deserves to have private competition all the time. Otherwise, you will not have much innovation and the situation will stagnate and you'll just have public hospitals that don't, they fulfill some fundamental needs, but they're not necessarily competitive. You make a good uh, a good case for uh, public education. I'm 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 more on the privatize everything side. I I don't know. Have you ever, have you read Hans Hermann Hoppe at all? Or he talks about a lot of this, like um, you know, pri- just the he, we're in a state where or that's a bad a bad word to use, but we're in a uh, time frame where we are so indoctrinated with uh, statism that it would be we couldn't just let the borders disappear. Like you said, like I'm more of a Rothbardian at heart, but that's not really like, you know, no borders and um, that sort of thing, but it's really not feasible today in the, in in the place we're at. Like 
borders are kind of a good thing in a way because of like what you said, well, you know, we have a pandemic right now. It's good to be able to like enforce certain things, but I just think it could all be done privately. So it's interesting to go back and forth. We could do a whole show about that. I think though. So um, do you have anything else you wanted to mention about that? Yeah, I, I think I can go back to a quote by, I, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said that if all men were angels, then there would be no need for government. Right. And this doesn't just refer to brute force because government in itself is a mean of applying force right. on others and legitimizing some sort of power. But it also goes back to the fact that some people just aren't capable of behaving within the minimal rules that some others establish just to live a good life for everyone. So ideally, we should all be capable of establishing well-functioning and efficient societies that are based, whose development is based on science and that actually allow free markets to develop in a fair way which has no intervention and prevents corporations from ever forming because the markets are, are so free that at any point anyone can enter the market and compete with the biggest player and defeat him if the product or service is superior. Mm -hmm. But in practice, I think also statism has gone so far that there is intervention in everything and each time we get a new regulation, it actually favors one side and establishes a new elite system. And also, some people are just not able to cope with this situation of sovereignty. It's frightening. A lot of people would rather be being taken care of. Right. That's what, I mean, uh, we're, we're very close on this idea. Uh, well, I might have to have you on again here in the near future and talk about all this more if you have time. Uh, do you have a, fa a favorite economist uh, that you would say that like, it, you know, you, you read a lot of their work and you say, this is my favorite guy or uh, what's your, is there anybody like that? Sometimes I have my mind blown just looking at stuff that Adam Smith wrote and mm -hmm. I, I have his book somewhere here. Okay. The Wealth of Nations, and right. some I, I never read it as a whole. It's kind of painful. There's too much stuff, too much information to process. I'm not saying that his writing sucks, because I've read some very bad and influential philosophers like Thomas Hobbes. You should try reading The Leviathan. It's kind of a struggle to mm -hmm. understand what he's trying to say. But uh, I think Adam Smith was brilliant for his time. And what I like the most in his ideas is the way he suggests to incentivize wealthy people to put their money to the public interest. Mm -hmm. For example, fund railroads and school gyms, whatever, whatever is necessary for a community and have this exchange between prestige and wealth. Because essentially when you're obscenely rich, you'll have a lot of people hate you and despise you and say you got lucky and you don't deserve to have a higher status. And I think that's part of human nature. But when you give something back and you prove that you are capable of empathizing, then you get what you do not have and you give them what they don't have. And I hope that in the future, it will also be the case with Bitcoin whales. And I know that we have some very 
eccentric individuals who own thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of coins. Right. And basically, if we enter what some, we sometimes call the Bitcoin standard, we're going to have a situation where some people who never believed in Bitcoin will buy it for maybe a million dollars a coin, right. possibly, if that ever happens. And that will just be a bunch of Satoshis that today you can buy for, uh, I think you can buy more than 10,000 sats per dollar right now. So in this situation, I reckon that somebody who owns 100,000 will figure out that there's no point to that kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. You can have anything in the world, basically, but what's the point if you see that some people around you are struggling and you're still having the same old problems that we have today with famine, with bad health, bad education, and all of these social problems. So they can either live in their citadels, and I see that there's a meme being established right now with people who own a lot of Bitcoin to build their own citadel and just be on top of the world and watch the rest of them die from viruses and kill each other and worse. Or you can make sure that all the problems that we have today get fixed by a better form of money. Because if you have a better form of money, but not a better way of handling money, then I guess we will just end up having the same old problems. Wow, that was a great explanation. Bravo. All the way from that. I mean, that's really how America became so wealthy in the beginning was people like Rockefeller, the Carnegie, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, they took all of their, you know, their wits and they were able to make a lot of money and then they were able to, you know, build the railroads, uh, uh, the, the steel factories, everything that was needed to create this industrious and wealthy nation at one point. Now we're the world's largest debtor, but at one point we were the world's, you know, wealthiest country by it wasn't even close, you know, we destroyed that over like 40 or 50 years with, since we left the gold standard. But yeah, I think everything you said there was really interesting. Um, and all in, you know, to the point of like reading hard, you know, boring or difficult economics books, I would say Hayek would be one of those ones for me. It's like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but uh, just the prose is not, not so great. Um, so let's get into when you found uh, Bitcoin for the first time, what year was that? 2015 when I found it, but I didn't buy any because I was just dumb and I was still in Paris and, you know, being educated by left-wingers. And they made me actually do a presentation in Paris about Bitcoin and blockchain. At the time, the narrative was that blockchain is going to revolutionize whatever supply chains and databases and decentralize everything. It was... I think it was during the first year of Ethereum. Okay. Possibly. Yeah, I think that was 2015. Something like that, yeah. So yeah, there was all that hype floating in the air. And I got to do that presentation, but then I I looked up Bitcoin stuff. Mm -hmm. And I saw, I'm not sure if it was Wall Street Journal or The Economist or whatever. But I just saw an article which said that Bitcoin is dead. And there is no way it's going to go up once again. It was like $200, $300. At the time, it was all I had in my bank account. I had no idea that I could buy fractions. So I was thinking, okay, so 
these economists who are very well esteemed and respected from this publication, which is likewise respected, are saying that this is dying and it's a dead project and blockchain should be the future or whatever. And well, how do I invest into blockchain? I have no idea. But uh, how about I wait for a little while? So yeah, I missed that boat. I never got to be rich, but uh, I still kept an interest. I mean, I wasn't very involved. I wasn't, you know, checking Twitter every day to see what's going right. on, just looking at the news and stuff. And uh, actually, I think I heard about Bitcoin in 2013 or something, but at the time, it was just a meme about the price crashing after Mt. Gox. Many of us have, you know, we found it earlier on and then, uh, you know, we, we've, we got into it, you know, pretty quick or, you know, within a couple of years. And then uh, uh, some of us had lulls, like there were like periods where, like you said, you weren't checking Twitter every day. Um, I know I didn't start taking Twitter seriously until like last year or, you know, there were 28. 2018 or something like that i wish i would have like been on twitter you know I, I was on twitter in june 2009 but i was wasn't active i was taking facebook more seriously and then facebook capture friends at 5,000, and i'm like moved over to twitter and i'm like what was i doing wasting my time over there i've got you know so many the the resources on twitter are just a lot better for uh crypto and blockchain i think so what when you found it, what, what attracted you the most? Was it like, did you think it was, was it the tech? Was it the economics? Was it, you know, a, a medium of exchange, a store of value? What was it to you when you found it? At the time, I did not understand money. I had no idea, even though I did economics. And one of our professors back in Romania told us, you know, there used to be a time when each paper bill that was issued by the central bank had an equivalent quantity in gold that you could withdraw from any bank. So I knew about that, but I didn't know much about the gold standard and stuff. I was kind of lazy. I, I think I had all the resources right in front of me, but I just learned the bare minimum to pass the exams and get a good grade, but that was it. So when I discovered Bitcoin, I had no idea about what it's trying to do. So I was looking at it more like, what's this strange stuff? Nerd money, what can I buy with it? Because I was stuck in this Keynesian mindset that if you have money, you should buy stuff. So yeah, I had no idea. And I think the first attraction about it was watching the price because it's always like that. You see the price increase and you, you think there's something mystical behind it. And you, there's that FOMO that just burns your ass and makes you get on Coinbase <laughs> or whatever, whatever website gets you know, posted cap. as the first result on Google. And then you go on and buy and you get wrecked at first because you assume that just because you heard about it on the news and people are talking about the price increase, it's going to be like that. And you buy into the new paradigm narrative and you think, okay, so the rest of the world is going to adopt this. And we are in the middle of a paradigm shift that's happening right now. And I don't want to be left behind, but you know, it's very easy to get stuck in this type of bubble intellectual bubble and be disconnected from the outside world because 
then you go to a farmer's market and you see how people don't even know how to use a smartphone or don't even have one of these credit card terminals to pay. They just ask for cash and they have never known a different type of currency and they have never thought about gold and you have zero chances to go there and educate them on money mm-hmm. as a regular customer who just wants to buy maybe a couple of carrots from them. Yeah, it's, you know, economics isn't something you can just teach somebody in a five minute conversation. And that's another good point. If they don't have a smartphone or they're not even on the internet or, you know, they're just kind of living that farm life um, where they just, you know, they're very self-sufficient uh, and um, don't have much need to even really get outside and, you know, communicate with other people except to sell, you know, their goods. They're not going to, you know, understand the value of, uh, being able to send something across the world instantaneously they're 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 in their own bubble so um who knows like what sort of um adoption we'll get in the future i still think you know like half the world's going to use bitcoin someday but it just it's taking a while but i see i see more people getting on board um at, you know every day i i have friends still that ask you know are finally getting interested it's like what is taking you so long? But, you know, it's, it's good to see. What, what is your experience there? Um, you started, when did you start writing on it, um, on Bitcoin? In 2017, so, when I, I became more serious about it. And my best skill of them all is to write. I don't think I can do anything as well and as efficiently. Yeah, it's you, a good way to structure my thoughts, and it was a great way for me to learn as I was falling down the rabbit hole to just document basically my journey and possibly get paid for it. Absolutely. And you did you? How long after that did you start the Bitcoin Takeover podcast? So I started my own podcast in January 2019. Okay. At the time, I was in the middle of some sort of existential crisis and my grandmother was passing and she was slowly fading. And I knew that one of her last pieces of advice that she gave me was to take care of myself and try to do something of my own and not always rely on other people. And also, I was doing very badly financially at the time, so I needed some kind of backup plan to to be around the space to do something that I thought would be relevant even though I, I didn't get paid for it and I haven't made any money because I don't monetize it at least the first three seasons were just a hobby but it, it was a great way to get more into the community and meet more people and try to do something that's useful and provide some value there. Because if you go and listen, even your episode, I think is very good for Austrian economics. And I didn't put too much thought into it because at the time I was doing interviews with whoever was willing to come into the show. I was just forwarding invitations. And sometimes I would have five podcasts on the same week. Other times I would have to wait two months to get one interview. And it was the case once and it it got delayed and delayed and delayed and I just wasn't going anywhere. But I'm happy and proud that I got to season four. And just in case you're not aware and you're possibly not aware if you're watching this and listening, but I structure each 
part of my podcast in seasons of 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to keep some sort of central idea about them. I think the first podcast is about people who got into Bitcoin and have interesting stuff to say, while the season, the second and the third seasons are more spontaneous and are more about, they are less about planning and more about just finding interesting people on Twitter. Sometimes I would, I think there's this guy named Shaitan Yotan or something. Shaitan. It sounds like Satan, but. Oh, I, know, I think I, know you, you, I might know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I met him like five minutes before we started the recording. He, he just said, I want to get on your podcast. And I said, sure. When do we do it? How about now? Sure. And we, we just got on a call and we were there for like three hours and just talked. And it was insane. But for the fourth season, I tried to be more structured and have similar questions for all the guests. And the theme of this whole season is hardware wallets. And I tried to stay focused on it. And I, I am happy that I was able to get representatives of the five or six most important hardware wallet manufacturers so I had Slush from Trezor. I had BTC Chip, whose name is Nicholas, actually, and he's French, but he's the inventor of the ledger. And I also had Jonas Schnelli, who, who is a Bitcoin core developer, and Douglas Beckham, and two of them have created a Bitbox. I also had Rodolfo Novak, who is the creator of the cold card wallet. And I also had a COO of Shapeshift, who spoke about the Kipki, who is one of the oldest hardware wallets on the market. And the last one, actually, it's not the last one, but the last one that I'm going to mention in this sentence is Lixin from China, who designs the Kobo Vault, which is an interesting type of wallet that's useful for miners in China. And it's waterproof, it's rainproof, it, it can withstand physical damage, it costs like $500, and it's specifically designed with military-grade materials for the people who do mining in China. So I had these six, and I also had Peter Todd, who is a former Bitcoin Core developer, and he's brilliant in terms of explaining how security works and giving advice. And I also had... Brian from Bill Foddle. Bill Foddle is a company which produces metal plates and Faraday bags. And they are really great, really. And they help you put your Bitcoins in cold storage. So it was packed with big names. And it was an honor to be able to get that. And um, the whole content is available on bitcoin-takeover.com. And also on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. If you just look Bitcoin Takeover Season 4, it's going to be there. And I, I'm thinking about doing a Season 5 that is focused on the upcoming players on this hardware wallet market or possibly cold storage because that's also a big deal. Yeah, I, honestly, your, your podcast, The Bitcoin Takeover, is, I think I told you before, it's like the one I listen to the most. So I would say it's probably my favorite, to be honest. Um, and I'm not just saying that because you're on here. And I appreciate the compliments. I'm not just saying it because of that either. That was a fun episode that we got to do. But yeah, I just listened to your episode with, uh, I think it was Peter Todd the other day. 
And uh, I've listened to a few of them, you know, three to five times actually. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that people that are even, you know, uh, pretty well versed in Bitcoin can learn from, from the people you're having on things that I didn't know uh, before I, I uh, listened to them. So I appreciate you doing them. I hope you keep them coming. Oh, I hope I keep getting good guests. And my idea was to also write a book which takes quotations from these interviews and basically structures them in a way that makes sense. Like, what did the competition say about the Trezor? And I'm going to have the opinion of Ledger, of Coldcard, of Bitbox, and all of them, what they say in terms of pros and cons for the Trezor. And that's no longer just the opinion of a journalist like myself. It's the perception of the competition who simultaneously works in the field and develops a different product and service, but also has all the reasons to say the nasty stuff that they don't like so their product gets sold. So I guess for a consumer who maybe hasn't made up their mind about which hardware wallet to buy, this can be a very valuable resource because you see what the experts are saying. Yeah, so uh, not to shift topics too much, but what do you? I know you recently got a um, a phone that you can run the entire blockchain on, and I don't know. Do you still have it? Yeah, I, I have it right here. Let me. What, what, which just phone? Remove the which dust phone, from the screen. Which phone is it? So it's the HTC Exodus One X. Okay, so you no, can one run, S, not X. You can run a full node on that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice, but gimmicky at the same time. I wouldn't say it's the best way to run a full node. How long did it take for you? To, I, I, I remember you were giving updates on this a few months ago when you got the phone. What, how long did it take for you to download the chain and how you said it's a bit gimmicky? Like, what's your experience with it? So it took me two weeks to download the entire blockchain, but I'm not happy. I mean, I wrote a very extended review of it and i was not happy with the ram memory allocation because when you get a raspberry pi and you download the whole blockchain you'll be using about two gigabytes or three or even four gigabytes of ram to make that synchronization initially and if you use a lot of ram it's going to be sped up you don't have to wait two weeks you can right. basically just do it and a shorter amount of time, like a few days. But I wasn't happy that this phone has four gigabytes of RAM and only 60 to 80 megabytes were being used for the application which downloads the blockchain. And all of it, I, I guess I can show it. I just have to unlock the phone. All yeah, of it be careful, don't is show anything that you essentially. So you have this Zion app. And okay. all of the full note stuff happens in here. So I just type in my password. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the on-screen keyboard is kind of... Yeah, I, I just typed the incorrect password because there is no tactile feedback. Uh, so you don't know if you type the right letter. So let me try again. It may be good. I don't know if you have somebody looking at you, some prying eyes looking over your shoulder or something. I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. I mean, I don't care. I don't store any Bitcoins on it. 
Okay, so I was able to open it. So as you can see, I have no funds in it. But you have to go in BTC okay. or the full node. There you go, right in there. And then you go to this. I, I think it stopped synchronizing at this block height. Uh, it's so 96%. 96%. Okay. So how long would it take I haven't you used it in... to get back to, uh, you know, real time? I don't know. Right now it says that the SD card has been removed, but I haven't removed it. So I, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I need to reboot the phone. Okay. I've had it on for weeks. Didn't use it because you don't have wallet integrations. So you can only use your full node with the wallet that's provided by HTC. And that wallet doesn't have many features. Okay. You just, you don't even have the ability to manually set the fees. You you have just one receiving address and you use legacy addresses like they have no SegWit support. I've been waiting for updates because they promised they would fix it and allow you to also use the full node with other wallets because that's kind of the whole point. Right. I think it's pretty cool though that, you know, I mean, at least they, they, you know, people are moving the needle forward because that's obviously like the future. I, I think eventually everyone will have like the, the, the entire blockchain in their pocket that wants to be, that wants to carry it at least, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the future. Um, mobile, mobile computing is, it, it, you know, more, you know, people say that like Moore's law and um, what Metcalf's law and all those stuff, they explain all this stuff. And, you know, some people say they're slowing down, but, uh, I think we have enough room left to get, you know, get the entire blockchain in everybody's pocket here in the next five years. Hopefully that would be pretty cool. So moving on to, I just had to ask you that real quick about the, I was curious how you were enjoying that. Moving on to another, uh, you know, maybe the most controversial topic here um, is, is Bitcoin and blockchain maximalism. Um, I don't know what your take on it is. Um, I, it's getting pretty, toxic out there though on twitter and stuff these days it seems like people have chosen their their cult heroes in the space and they just mimic and go off of whatever they basically say is what i kind of take it as i don't know what your take is on it on the entire thing to be honest um i know that you i don't really ever see you talk about anything other than bitcoin i don't think um you know as far as i see i don't read every single tweet or anything but what is your what is your uh, feelings about you know other blockchains? So my take on altcoins and other blockchains is that there are interesting, maybe scientific experiments, but definitely not a way to store value, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to invest in them. Okay, that's pretty succinct. What would you say about things like? Um, Chainlink. See, I I'm not a proponent of a million different blockchains, but I do think that here's my take on it. As somebody who enjoys reading economics, and I'm a bit of an armchair economist, what you know, I feel like all of these projects push the you know push the space and uh, Bitcoin forward as you know a competitor. Um, it you know money is a good just like anything else. Uh, the more money is out there, the better. The you know the more competition, the better the better for Bitcoin, you know, if there's no reason for, for Bitcoin to, you know, keep improving, um, whether it's privacy or scaling or anything, uh, 
you know, I think without these altcoins, they really, you know, they could just say, you know, this is it. This is, this is Bitcoin. Um, this is what you get. So what is your take on that? Like, uh, as far as a competition thing, do you find that any of them have utility, like as a medium of exchange or you just kind of, you just think they're experiments? So honestly, I know nothing about Chainlink. I never really cared to look into it. So I just opened CoinMarketCap and I clicked on it. Mm -hmm. It seems to have a huge supply of, actually, it's not huge compared to Tron, but it's 350 million. What is it, 350? Oh, no, that's the circulating supply. Sorry. Yeah. So it has like a Total billion. supply is a billion, I think. Will be a billion? Or is it a billion or... A billion, yeah. Yeah. So Chainlink is, I'm not, I'm just getting more into Chainlink. I'm just using it as an example because I think interoperability is going to be huge. Um, and Chainlink is working on an Oracle to, you know, mesh the blockchain world with the old database world and like external, you know, making sure even blockchains can communicate with one another. I'm just wondering what you think about like interoperability and, um, I just don't think everything can be built atop one blockchain. And, you know, it's to me, it's like having one app on your phone or something like all of these apps provide utility. And that's why your smartphone is so valuable. I, I kind of view them like, you know, Bitcoin is the king to me. I just wonder what your take is on like the whole, do you have any more uh, like you want to elaborate on? Do you think interoperability can, you know, exist without other blockchains? So that's actually a very general statement that you've made because you can distinguish between altcoin blockchains and sidechains. And sidechains are basically parallel blockchains that operate within the economic limits of the main chain, but offer all sorts of crazy features that you don't find on the main chain and you can just transfer from one to the other without needing to create a different currency and without minting anything else. Mm -hmm. So I think in this regard, the design is from 2013, I think, for the first ever sidechain. And there's also a research paper from Blockstream, which dates from 2014. Mm -hmm. And it took them about four years to build the first ever functional sidechain liquid. And that one is capable of doing a lot of the stuff that Ethereum does in terms of tokenization. and also has confidential transactions. So if you move your coins on the sidechain, you'll be able to better improve your privacy for transactions. So I think interoperability is huge and there is only so much that the Bitcoin blockchain can do. But at the same time, I don't see the purpose of Link or any other blockchain to exist as such with a currency of its own. That's an interesting take. See, here's, we, we can go back and forth on this for a minute. Here's what I think about like the side chains though. It's like, you're still in that ecosystem, like Blockstream, all of the Blockstream guys are like, and like I said, I'm a Bitcoin guy, BTC all the way, BTC is king, but they benefit financially from pushing these side chains and the toxic maximalism. Whereas people who go outside of that ecosystem and, you know, try to, you know, embrace other projects. Um, and I think really create a larger network effect 
um, aren't tying everything. I, I don't know. I just feel like they're tying everything to their own finances. It's like they're pumping their own bags by saying, this is it. This is the only one you build everything off of us. I just think that Bitcoin of all the projects existing today has the greatest chances to keep on existing 10 years from now. I don't think we'll be talking about anything else. Maybe that's something new and innovative will come along at some point and it's going to be like Ethereum 4.0 or something because we have had so many, I've lost count. But maybe that they will get the design right for once and do something useful. But the problem is that Once you develop an industry and you have VCs and you have investments, it's very hard to have a pure launch like the one that Bitcoin had. And it's very hard to not have this pitfall of pre-mines and VC money, which get possibly get some pre-sale tokens so that they can take advantage whenever the tokens get launched on the market. And it's not like, I think the last fair launch that we saw was grin and that's based on the mimble wimble protocol and that one had no type of investment behind it and actually at some point the developers were struggling to find funds to keep on working and grin and mimble wimble are kind of huge right now because they will be implemented into bitcoin one way or the other i know that litecoin is working with grin right now to build extension blocks Mm -hmm. and extension blocks function basically just like side chains, except that there's mining into extension blocks. So there will be two parallel blockchains working on the same network and both of them get mined by different miners. And one of them is going to have confidential transactions with Mimblewimble and the other one is going to have just regular open ledger transactions. And you are able at any point to just transfer money from one to the other without creating inflation. So I I don't really understand how that works right now. I didn't put too much thought into the economics of it, but I like the idea of maintaining the supply and not creating some other kind of asset or token that competes with the existing one. That's, That's possibly reason why I like side chains as opposed to something which is a good idea, possibly works well and is going to get implemented to some industry, but it has a crooked financial policy. And that's the case for Ethereum, which had a 60% pre-mine and it's kind of shady with all the decision-making and how they decide sometimes that they want to delay hard forks and they have a hard fork coordinator and they push all the rest of the world to get on the same chain with them and make the same decisions or else they're going to be left behind and have an altcoin that is possibly undesirable. So I think there's a lot of value in research and in coding and all of this open source work. All of these projects will find a purpose, but it will be on some sort of open protocol which has a very solid form of currency. Otherwise, we end up in the 2017 mania where everyone was trying to tokenize something and put it on the blockchain and create a coin for everything, which doesn't really make sense. And I think at the peak of it, when I was writing for 
Crypto Globe, which was the first publication for which I started writing, I got an email from someone who was trying to explain to me that it's a good idea to have a cryptocurrency for corporate gifts that you get for Christmas and for Easter and for whatever national holiday. And instead of getting gifts that you don't want, you'll get that token. And it blew my mind. Like, why don't you just ask for US dollars or whatever? Why don't you just say, give me money? Why do you need to create a token for this? It's insane. You end up having all these crazy ideas that don't really serve a practical purpose. You end up having a bubble where everyone buys into anything, hoping that it's going to be the next 100x. Mm-hmm. But there's very little that actually survives all of this mania. So it's very hard for me to endorse any project that is not at least fair and has good developers and has a serious roadmap. Right. Because you, you, you can write you know plans on a roadmap, but how many of the ICOs which raised millions of dollars were actually capable of keeping up with their promises? Most of them just gave up when they saw that Ethereum went from $1,000 to 200 And they said, no, nah, this is not sustainable. We basically, I, I think a lot of them just paid themselves first. Right. So they ended up with a lot of money. And they also paid for exchange listings because around the time, it was a big deal. And people who are buying into ICOs were actually expecting that coin or token to get listed on an exchange as soon as possible. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think they all have utility. I, sh- I, you know, I just think that there are more than just one or two or three. I think there's like maybe 30 coins that, you know, could stick around. Um, but as we, if, you know, as we've seen over the first 11 years, there's, um, you know, only a few have the staying power. Like Litecoin's been around since 2011. Bitcoin, um, Ethereum, we talked about earlier, launched in 14 or 15 like you know a lot of these don't they don't make it so it is important to you know do your own research like you said it's like you can't just you can't just throw money at you know coin market cap and pick number 71 on the list or something and expect to make a lot of money so what is adoption like in uh europe have you uh have you have you seen uh, a lot of businesses pop up there uh that accept bitcoin yet or um uh, or any crypto for that matter, or, you know, amongst friends, are your friends interested now? Um, what, what's it like? I mean, you do a podcast, I'm sure you, you know, you have a, your friends, they know you do a podcast. Have you gotten people interested uh, in your circle? No, not really. So none of okay. my real life friends are into Bitcoin. And I kind of like it like this, because I, I get to understand what their struggles and their needs are. And I, I try to basically level my expectations and see to which extent Bitcoin can fix problems and to which extent it doesn't. There are problems that are related to basic human nature and you're not going to fix them with any kind of money. And more money or any form of money, be it sound or fiat, will just not fix these problems, no matter what someone like Dean will say. It's just about developing yourself as a person and trying to get better. But I, I did talk to some people about it. And there is a guy in Bucharest who is also the owner of a payments processor that 
allows merchants to accept Bitcoin. And I met him at a conference last year. And he's very nice and we kept in touch and he invited me to one of the meetups that he does. I think that was two months ago. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I presented my experience with hardware wallets. Actually, it was one month ago, but in my mind, so much has happened, especially since this coronavirus situation that my perception of time has been distorted. (laughs) But yeah, I found this guy who does meetups in Bucharest. And it's interesting that he is able to create a community. And that community is kind of interesting in itself to see how it debates and how most of them come in as shitcoiners and then they settle to Bitcoin and possibly an interest in Ethereum. A lot of developers and computer scientists just see a lot of potential in a platform which allows you to develop applications because that's what they do. That's their job. Most of them will not become savvy enough to work on Bitcoin core projects or develop wallets of their own. They just want to create something and they think in terms of how do I monetize this better? And then they discover Ethereum and say, oh, this seems like a good idea. Possibly it can be decentralized and I can ride this hype wave or something. But it's interesting. And there are some businesses that accept Bitcoin here in Romania, mostly online businesses, which operate through this payments processor. I I think there are also individuals who will willingly say, yo, yeah, if you have Bitcoin, just pay me. And Bitcoin finds itself in quite a gray area in terms of regulation. So it, it has no official definition. It's just thrown into the mix with all the rest of the virtual currencies. So it's the same as V-Bucks and Fortnite and the same as Candy Crush tokens and stuff like that. It's a virtual currency and you have to pay taxes for your gains on it. So if you buy it from an exchange and you sell it, obviously, if you have made more money, more fiat money, then you're going to have to pay some taxes. I think that's the only kind of regulation other than this. I don't even think people in government understand or are capable of processing all this information about what Bitcoin is. Because if you take it all to the core of it, and that's no bad pun intended, but (laughs) if you take Bitcoin to its essence, you discover that you just have code and everyone is just playing with computer code that gets run on computers. And how can you actually distinguish between Bitcoin and people playing World of Warcraft and exchanging gold? I think fundamentally, the main difference is that it has a valuation on global markets. And some economists and financial people have agreed that it has a value and it can be traded And that's the fundamental difference. Also, there's the security and there's the decentralization that help it stay alive because otherwise, I don't think governments would have allowed it to flourish and develop to the extent that I think every day in the last week, it has reached a new all-time high in terms of hash rate for miners. Yeah, they don't really, you know, people in government don't know 
what a hash rate is. They don't, they're, it's very black and white to them. You know, like you said, uh, that's a good example. I used that actually the other day on the last podcast, I think was um, uh, World of Warcraft. That was like the first time that I know of, I'm sure there might've been something else where like digital, there was like this digital asset that had, or digital thing, I guess you could call it an asset that had value. And, you know, with Bitcoin and they don't really understand that, you know, we're in an era of digital scarcity now, digital scarcity now. So it's very, um, it's, it's tough for them, you know, to even understand what we're doing. And Bitcoin is like such a moving target too. It's like, where are we going to be in another year? That's, that's one of the things, the problems with government is they're all, they, you know, they can't keep up with the free market. So it's interesting to just see what's going on in different countries around the world and how their, you know, their take on, um, you know, innovation and what money is and uh, the rule of law, all of it mixed together. It's interesting. So you've already kind of answered this question, but you, you uh, believe Bitcoin will remain king for how long? Is there, uh, you know, the foreseeable future will Bitcoin will be king? I don't think at this point, maybe in the first three or four years, there was a chance for another cryptocurrency to become king. Mm -hmm. But in terms of monetary policy and scarcity and branding, because that's also a big part of the problem, you can come up with something new today and it might be brilliant, but it will just get lost among all the thousands of tokens and cryptocurrencies that exist. And unless you have a proper marketing and you're able to make it decentralized to withstand government pressures, then you'll just end up like something like Libra right? that never really takes off, even though possibly it could have solved a big existing problem of the world it just did not happen because of worried regulators and politicians and the fact that it had an association of companies that staked their money into it. And it all seemed just too malevolent and dangerous for governments. Whereas Bitcoin, when it started, it had very humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for me to imagine at this point that another project can have the same humble beginnings and reach the same momentum and have the same Lindy effect. Right. And the Lindy effect says that if something has existed over a long period of time, it's more likely to keep on existing. So we have moved to the point where we refer even to this whole blockchain industry as something that's derivative of Bitcoin. I don't think any of it can exist without referring to the first functional blockchain which started all of this craze. I, I know that there were blockchains before Bitcoin, and I know that maybe it's just the term that was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, but I know that David Chom in the 80s was designing a concept for something else, which was very similar in design and had a similar way of functioning except that it just did not find the proper purpose that's another thing that i find very interesting is that many of these old school crypto anarchists cypherpunks are not maximalist and i think that is something that is like david chom is working on a uh, quantum resistant uh, blockchain of his own right now and i i just i don't know 
that tells me that like I've heard Nick Zabo say that he's not a maximalist, um, but he talks about Bitcoin primarily. That's kind of the camp I'm in. Like Bitcoin is number one, but let's try to build um, things to keep every you know let's let's create that competition. But yeah, I, I, I you know it, it, the whole thing's very interesting. Um, I still I, I agree with you. I think Bitcoin is like when people talk about blockchain that you can't, how do you talk about blockchain without Bitcoin? I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. And I, I really foresee Bitcoin being king of the, the environment or ecosystem for at least in this decade, you know, there's no, that the first mover advantage, um, like you said, the Lindy effect, um, with every block, the network grows stronger. And, um, it just seems like it's, it, you know, that's the way it's going to go. But I, I, do you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so we spoke about the cypherpunks and most of their concern was about privacy. If you right. look at the emails and their conversations that they were having, and there's also this very good and useful book from 1992, I think, by Tim May, mm -hmm. which is called The Cyphernomicon. And it's essentially an encyclopedia of cypherpunk ideas that have been gathered around maybe a span of two or three years. Okay. And you see people like Hal Finney and Exabo and Wei Dai just present their concepts and ideas and exchange whatever opinions they were having. And primarily their concern was about privacy. And they were all concerned about the extending surveillance apparatus of the governments. And they wanted to keep the internet as free as possible. That was one of the main drives behind them. And I think David Chom doesn't come from the school of also Austrian economics. I don't think he cares much about this financial side. Even though yeah, I don't he, know. he created the, sure for, the first form of electronic cash with eCash, I mean, I think he's much more concerned about privacy based on his color research. Mm -hmm. And there is an article that he wrote in the 80s about beating Big Brother. I'm not sure the, the exact title of, of it, but it's about defeating Big Brother to strong cryptography. And right now with the Alexa project, or I think he changed the name of it. It's XX or something. But David... Chom is trying to build a messaging app that is much more private than anything that already exists mm -hmm. and also tries to have a couple of other use cases. So in my book, he seems much more concerned about privacy and is much more in the Monero side of the debate, which puts privacy first and monetary policies secondly. They exist there just as a way of possibly funding the project and attracting investments. Yeah, I don't think that the XX token that they issued, and I think that was a couple of weeks ago, is more of a security as it was not even sold in the United States and you're not able to buy it as a U.S. citizen during the pre-sale. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I agree with you. They were more geared toward privacy, like with Eric Hughes, uh, the cypherpunk manifesto. He, that's like the, the ethos or the, the thesis of that is like privacy and um, you know, we deserve our privacy and, um, it didn't really talk about the medium of exchange and store value and that as much. It was more of like 
um, how we, you know, how we remain private, how, how we, you know, that it's, it's our right to have a private life and all of that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk about these things. I really enjoy the, uh, these type of conversations, but I have uh, a couple of last questions for you. And this isn't even a Bitcoin question or a blockchain question. So um, I'm going to surprise you with these. I'll call it the lightning round today. You are a commentator on many things, not just blockchain and, um, you know, Bitcoin. Um, you, you like to talk about other things like um, uh, commentary on like bands and films. And I see you post from time to time on those. So I want to hear your top three bands and your top three films. Oh man, <laughs> you put me in the spot there. Yeah, so, like, well, it's no fun if you're if you're prepared. Okay, so <laughs> I think my favorite band of all times is, is Led Zeppelin. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, Zeppelin their live band. shows were hard to beat, and right. their albums. I mean, I think the first five are excellent. Maybe that the sixth one is eh presence kind of sucks and possibly into the outdoor has a couple of good moments but <laughs> between 1968 and 1974 1975 i think they were the kings of rock and roll and it's just so energetic and wild and right. raw when you listen to john bonham drumming and jimmy page playing guitar it's just something that is very hard to capture it has this type of raw energy that you you don't really find in other bands. Possibly the punk rock movement had more energy than this, but it wasn't as musical at the same time. It, I think Led Zeppelin managed to capture this sweet spot where they combined that sexual bravado and flamboyance of the hippie movement, but also the technicalities of musicianship. And yeah, that's something I appreciate. But my second one, I think, is the Beatles for their songwriting. Love the Beatles. I think I can listen to them all day long and find some fascination in how John Lennon and Paul McCartney were able to structure songs. And I, I think their lyrics are kind of childish at times. They didn't put too much thought into them. Yeah. I think they matured with their solo careers, but with the Beatles, it was poppy. And it was mostly dumb, even though maybe a song like Norwegian Wood is very smart because it has these innuendos and it's much more mature than the average I want to hold your hand, you know. But other than that, the songwriting is just brilliant and their chemistry is just hard to beat. And my third favorite band, I mean, it's very hard to choose. (laughs) I will have to go with something that I have listened to a lot lately. And I don't want it to be like the Beatles and the Stones, you know, because I love the Rolling Stones and I, I listen to them a lot. And I think their albums that they released with, what's his name? Oh man, I, I'm going to look like an idiot. But he is the guitar player who has been around after Brian Jones left. Yeah. And he's uh, responsible. Mick Taylor. Okay. Mick Taylor. So let, let me look it up so I don't mess okay. it up. But Mick Taylor. Yeah. So it was Mick Taylor who played guitar on the albums that I like from the Rolling Stones. So Let It Bleed. And then 
actually before it there was beggar's banquet and then there's let it bleed and then there's sticky fingers and then there's exile on main street and then there's goat soup i mean these albums are just legendary they had five years of excellence and it's very hard to beat this type of energy and discography that they have I, I think the stones went downhill after rodney would join the band even though i think they got better in concert and live performances but in terms of songwriting uh it was just okay but other than that if i think of individual artists i'm gonna have to mention bruce springsteen in the early years i mean it was just the force it's very hard to define what he was during the Born to Run era. When he was kind of like James Brown and kind of like Bob Dylan and kind of like Elvis, he had a little bit of everyone and the East Street Band backing him was just phenomenal. I'm more of a Bob Dylan guy. I'm glad you threw him in there. So what, what about film? Let's go to film. Okay, so my f- first mention... And my favorite film of all times is The Wizard of Oz from 1939 with Judy Garland. That's, I, didn't, I did not see you going there. When I was a kid, I was watching Cartoon Network, which was the only channel on television that had cartoons all day long. Mm-hmm. And I was watching up until, I think, 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. when they were turning off the lights and there was this animation that transition between Cartoon Network and TCM. Mm -hmm. And usually the first film that was airing on TCM was The Wizard of Oz. And I think I watched at least the first half hour of the film like hundreds of times. Isn't there some sort of theory that the Yellow Brick Road is something about the Kansas City Fed or something like that? Isn't there something? Have you ever heard that story? Yeah, I've read all of that stuff. Even yeah. Oz referring to ounces of gold, you know. Yeah. Is that do you, you did you think it was valid or I haven't looked into it a lot. Do you think there was like some sort of underlying like uh, you know, it was kind of like a a secret, you know, amongst the people that created it or what what do you think? So it was written just by one guy whose name is Frank Baum. Okay. And it was in the early 20th century. And if you put all of that economic information into the context of the times, it makes a lot of sense. So whoever came up with the theory actually knows a little bit about the economics of the time. So it it may be possible, but we're talking about films right now. And I think the color, the music, the acting, everything about The Wizard of Oz is just something that makes me happy. And I can watch that any day of the week and not get bored and I've probably seen it a hundred times myself it's a good one yeah i i think my second favorite one and I, i'm gonna have to tie them i think <laughs> okay so on one hand i have citizen kane which i think is just a genius of a film not not just i, I know that it's studied in film schools because orson wells has tried all the filming techniques that were available at the time. So it's kind of a masterclass in transitioning between scenes and positioning the camera and putting the lights in the sweet spots to highlight some details. So from this point of view, I can understand it, but I think the story is just timeless. And 
it, I, I think a lot of Bitcoiners who are into eternal riches and big titty bitches and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, if they watched Citizen Kane, they would possibly reflect on the purpose of all this, you know? Because you end up, he, Charles Foster Kane, the leading character from the film, mm-hmm became one of the wealthiest men on the planet and he had it all. He had a huge castle which he called Xanadu in which he was living and he died alone. Mentioning Rosebud, which was uh this is a spoiler, but I don't think you can spoil a film from the thirties. Right. But it, it was the slave from his childhood because that was the only the last moment possibly when he was free and he was able to just enjoy himself. After that it, it was just a matter of making a lot of money and becoming a public person and trying to basically tick all of the boxes that we think about when we refer to a successful life. And you see a dying man who has had it all, who lives in a castle and was able to accomplish everything that he ever wanted to. During the length of the film, he loses his friends, he loses his family. I mean, his wife leaves him and he ends up with an annoying opera singer who's not even that great. And you can see how the money that he has and he has accumulated across time doesn't really help him become happy. Mm-hmm. So one of the lessons of the film is that no matter how much money you have and what you buy and what kind of obscenely wealthy and lavish lifestyle that you're living, you're still not going to be happy. You're not going to find fulfillment. And there's a scene, and I send it to girls on Tinder sometimes when we talk. So I see smooth. that they're so smooth. materialistic, <laughs> yeah. So there's a scene with Susan Alexander, who is the, the second wife of Charles Foster Kane, who is in the castle because they live in a castle, and she complains that she's feeling too lonely. Mm-hmm. I mean... When you think about it, you have these young girls who grow up with these Disney fairy tales and they are told that ideally they should live in a castle like, you know, the Beauty and the Beast, like Cinderella who goes to the prince's castle and they live happily ever after. And what kind of young girl doesn't appreciate at least the advantages that come with living in your own castle? And I I guess Bitcoiners have established citadels, which are their version of the castles. But when you go there, you realize that there's not much to do really. And possibly you're better off just living a smaller life in an apartment with neighbors who at least keep your life more interesting and give you a reason to do stuff and make your life unpredictable. Because when you can plan everything, it, I think... I should make the comparison with television and Netflix because Netflix is like the peak of our choice of entertainment. You can have anything whenever you want for as long as you want, but you end up not watching anything. You just scroll through stuff and nothing makes you happy anymore. And you don't really discover new stuff unless you randomly open some films or series that don't make you feel satisfied because chances are that they're going to suck. But when you just have cable television, you switch through channels and you're going to have something like the Paramount channel or something. And they show classics sometimes. So you you just 
switch channels and you find something and sometimes it's just surprisingly good or it fits your mood or you're right. going to like it for whatever reason and you are not expecting that to happen it was just some sort of weird chance that took you to see those scenes and i think the beauty of life is also randomness and discovery if you have everything way too planned and possibly when you can do whatever you want and you're not bound to anyone and you don't have friends or family and you can tell anyone to go fuck themselves i mean this is kind of the peak of having this sovereign life right mm -hmm. and ideally we should all try to seek to get it to the greatest extent but you should still have close friends and family and people who keep your life interesting because yeah, otherwise if you just end up with people who stick around just because you're wealthy and they want to spend your money and they want to do stuff with your money. That's not real friendship and you're not going to have real accomplishments with this. I think that's why so many people like children that grow up really wealthy are, are so miserable and they often like just kill themselves or just never do anything because they, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, no half of the fun of becoming wealthy is the is the, is the um is the the rise you know the you know the 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 whole story of the the come up the the what it takes you know getting up in the morning and having something that makes you happy and also i agree with you that you know money isn't everything and uh i think being like a digital nomad and being able to travel around the world and work from location and just have a good standard of living is just as important as being like really wealthy. So that's a good, that's a good um, explanation. What is number three? Okay. So on par with Citizen oh, Kane, yeah. I mentioned Casablanca. Okay. I, I can watch that film at any time and it's going to make me just as happy. It, <laughs> it has all of these cheesy jokes and puns and it has a strange sense of humor. But I also like the iconic presentation and the scenes and that opening scene from the bar with Rick showing up and the music playing. And it's just incredible. You know, it's very hard for me to describe it into words. And all that feeling of discovering a long lost love and meeting somebody for the first time in years and finding your feelings once again and discovering that even though you try to convince yourself that it's over and you have isolated yourself from your former life, you just stumble upon that. I mean, that that's human tragedy. <laughs> it's irony. It's all in one. And you're going to go through this ride of even empathizing and feeling like you have a lot in common with Humphrey Bogart's character. And I don't know. It's just so great. The uh, old films are so much better than the new ones. I think all of the CGI and just, oh, man, I don't know who. This That's another story. Who are they writing them for? Are they trying to dumb down the audience or does the audience want dumbed down material? Is that what people want to watch these days? I watched a, a movie on Netflix the other night and I was just like, yeah, this is kind of good, but it's it's nothing like those old movies that you're talking about. So, yeah, I appreciate that you went all old school there. Um, and then lastly here, I have to uh, – this is the, the closing question I've been asking all my guests. Um, what does Bitcoin mean to you? 
to me, it means financial freedom. It's about escaping this framework of surveillance. And it's about making a statement to your government that you are trying to use a currency that you cannot control. And unless they're going to be better at managing their fiat, which I don't think is going to go away in our lifetime, mm-hmm. but unless they try to be you know, more responsible with their policies, they're going to get replaced. So I think it's much more than an upper hand in relation to your government. It's kind of a secret weapon that you have. And I think anyone, actually, I don't have to think it. it, Anyone can actually purchase an amount of Bitcoin and store wealth and refuse to use governmental money and get involved in this circular economy. So it makes a lot of sense to pressure the government to the greatest extent to be accountable and to just get over with all of this circus that's going on and all of this greed. And I think politics is so rotten right now that you have big banks that will make money no matter who's in office because they also have people in administration and they're going to fund every candidate's campaign. Mm -hmm. And if they win, they're going to have secretaries of state or whatever that will favor them. So, yeah, it's very difficult right now because I don't think there is any kind of politics that is vertical and can say to financial interests, you can go fuck yourself because I'm going to follow the constitution or whatever. Right. I I think in the early years with the American Republic, it was very fascinating and you had all of these big personalities. Actually, it's very hard to know that they were the saints that we have made them become in time. Right. But they seem to have more ideals that are gone right now. Mm-hmm. And people don't seem to care as much about freedom as they did in the 19th century. I totally Actually, agree. I know it was the 18th century when the American Republic right. was created, but it was a huge wave of revolutions all across mm-hmm. Europe and America. It was the American Revolution in 1787 and then the French Revolution in 1789. And then you had all of these revolutionary movements in Europe in early 19th century. And then you had the nation states that were created. I tend to, former kingdoms. And, yeah, I tend to agree with that was a good way to close this is that we, I, I sort of view us as the pioneers. Uh, hopefully, some, you know, they romanticize about us in like 300 years about, you know, now these, not that I want any specific, I'm talking about the entire community but um that we laid you know maybe this will be like something that carries on for centuries and this is like just how money will be and that's kind of how i view it that uh you know we've broken this cycle so i appreciate you coming on the show today sir uh and uh this is the beeries and numerous podcast episode number nine um i'd definitely like to have you on again in the future yeah let me know when this gets posted so i can tweet it Absolutely. It'll, it'll be out in uh, probably two days. Um, would you like to plug any of your, you, you mentioned it earlier, but why don't you plug your Twitter and your um, podcast and anything else you want to here? This is your, your time to shine. Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at 
T H E V L A D C O S T E A. I'm not sure if you were able to follow, but it's T H E the Vlad Costa. That's that's how you pronounce it, Costa, not Costia, not Castia. But I I've, I don't care anymore. It's Say it one more time. T H E. Oh, oh, oh yeah. No, how, how do you pronounce it? Costa. Costa, like ah. Costa. 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 Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah, it's difficult. I, I try to make other Americans pronounce it, but you don't have that group of sounds that you pronounce in your language. Right, so. right. Everything's kind of bland over here. Uh, and then what? What? Where do you want people to go to find? Was that the? Did you? Was that your Twitter or the Bitcoin takeover? No, the Bitcoin takeover is BTCTKVR on Twitter, right. but you can just look for the Bitcoin takeover podcast and you also find it on iTunes and Spotify and YouTube. I keep it all there. You, I, I, you have no excuse really. I mean, <laughs> if you don't have an iTunes account, you can listen for free on Spotify. And if you don't want to sign up to Spotify, you can just use YouTube. So yeah, there is no escaping. Or you could just stream it on YouTube like I do as I take my dog for a walk and listening to Vlad. So I appreciate you coming on the show today and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when this is out and let's stay in touch. Hopefully you come on again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hang around for one second. I'll say goodbye to you.